listening to the Refinery Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Saturday night service in Brea, California. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you're new, this, this series, Rooted, is all about a foundation for a better you. Dealing with the roots, dealing with the deep parts of our life. Um, like a growing tree, we got our Hass avocado tree up here, and uh, it's doing pretty well, you know? It's, it's got some new little leaves on here. We're watching it, we're taking care of it. I move it outside during the week so it can get a little sunshine, and then we bring it back in. That's our Hass avocado tree. And we're created like these trees. You know, and Hass avocado tree has a purpose. It's supposed to produce Hass avocados. Who likes Hass avocados? Come on, wave at me. Don't forget the kids. Oh, the kids, elementary school kids. Hey, if you're an elementary school kid, hey, we want to encourage you, get out of here. That's what we want. No, that isn't what we want to say. We got something for Are we good? Are we good? Any elementary school kids? And we're all good? Okay, I just want to make sure that the people in the back are waving at me, pointing at the kids. So sorry about that. <laughs> We're created like this tree. This, this Hass avocado tree is, is created and designed to create or make Hass avocados. We are created and designed to be fruitful lives, successful lives. That's the way God designed us, on purpose and for a purpose. And we know that the fruitfulness of this tree lies down here in the roots. The condition of the roots, what's going on in the roots, really dictates what happens with this tree. Bad roots bad fruit or no fruit at all. Good roots, good fruit. And so that's why we're in this series called Rooted. And there's actually a passage of scripture that we base this whole teaching on. If you'll take a look, and I'm going to ask everybody, even if it's your first time, we like to read God's word out loud here, we like to charge the atmosphere with God's word. So let's all try to read this together. Ready? Begin. Let your roots grow down into him, Jesus Christ, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Keyword in there, there's a whole bunch of keywords, but one of the keywords that we're focusing on tonight actually is that your faith, then your faith will grow strong. See, our roots are supposed to produce faith in our lives, spiritually speaking. And so we've seen through Jesus's teaching over the last few weeks uh, that God wants us to be fruitful, and he actually plants a seed in us to see fruitfulness take place in our lives. If you haven't been with us, uh, you can go back to our podcast on iTunes or even go to our website and take a look at our, our past messages and you can kind of see where, we're, where we've come from. We're going to jump right back into the series and talk about this parable that Jesus taught on and how it deals with the roots in our life. It's a parable, a story about a farmer. Jesus tells this story about a farmer in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, it's found in Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, and Luke chapter 8. He teaches this parable. And a parable, if you're not familiar with a parable, a parable is a story that Jesus would teach that has a spiritual significant meaning towards our life, usually like an illustration or a metaphor. In this particular passage that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, Jesus talks about a farmer. And a farmer goes out and begins to scatter seed. And typically what, the way the farmer did it back in that day is he would just have this bag of seed. Maybe it was corn seed. Maybe it was wheat seed. Whatever kind of seed he wanted to see grow. Takes and just begins to scatter it. Get it out there. Hoping and praying that some of the seed will take root and begin to produce something fruitful. Jesus uses this illustration to teach us the principles of our own lives. 
This farmer goes out and he plants or sows seed and he scatters it in the land. And we see in the parable we saw over the last few weeks that there were four different kinds of soil. There was the hard soil. Everybody say hard soil. There was the hard soil. There was the rocky soil. Say rocky soil. There was the thorny soil. Say thorny soil. And finally, the fertile soil. Yep, yep. The conditions of the soil really dictate how fruitful this tree will be. How, how the roots will actually be able to do their job. I understand this, not because I'm a farmer. I really don't have much farming background. Actually, I have no farming background, and I think about it. But when I was growing up, my dad was a wannabe farmer. He wanted to be a farmer, and we lived down here in Orange County, and he would drive by some of the farmlands when I was young, and he just imagined owning avocado groves, orange groves. He just loved the idea of that. And so when I was about 10 years old, he packed up my mom and I and said, we're moving to Hesperia. Not that that's any kind of farmland or anything, but he said, let's get out of Orange County. It's becoming a rat race. Let's go up to Hesperia, and he bought a bunch of land up there in Hesperia. And he wanted to have horses and he wanted to grow stuff. So at 10 years old, I began to learn all sorts of things about kind of farming, but not farming in the kind of soil that you'd want to plant anything. Anybody ever been up to the high desert, Victorville, Hesperia? It's a desert up there, okay? I was kind of mad to leave my friends and to leave the activities uh, down here and move up to Hesperia, but there were new activities that I got involved in up there in the high desert. I got into BMX race bicycling. I got into motorcycle riding. Uh, I actually got into horse riding for a little while as well. And we kind of got into farming on a small scale. We took half of our one acre plot of land and, and my dad decided he wanted a little mini farm out there. And I remember very clearly as a young kid, my dad, the first thing he said was, well, we got to prepare the soil because this soil in Hesperia is rock hard. It's full of rocks, it's full of weeds, and it's just sand. So if we want something to grow, we're going to have to prepare the soil. So I came home one day and there was this thing that my dad had purchased. Actually, here's a picture of it. He'd purchased this thing. And anybody know what that thing is called? It's a rototiller, that's right. He, bought, he purchased himself a rototiller. Uh, this is not the picture of that rototiller. This is one I found online. The one we had was actually red. It was a big, I think a Honda or something like that rototiller. And I remember as a little kid going, what is that, Dad? And he goes, that's what's going to help us prepare the soil. And he goes, you get to run it. I go, I do? All right. So my dad starts it up and we start running this rototiller. The problem is running a rototiller in Hesperia is like riding a bucking bronco, okay? Because that soil doesn't want to break up. I was 10 years old. I was flying around the backyard. I didn't get very far. Matter of fact, I ran into our neighbor's fence and knocked down our neighbor's fence. And pretty quickly, my dad said, yeah, maybe I'm going to go ahead and run the rototiller here. After plowing down my neighbor's fence, I was demoted to following behind him, picking out the rocks and picking out the weeds from the dirt. And then after we were done rototilling, bringing all sorts of manure and fertilizer in the soil, then I got to help my dad out and run the rototiller again now that the soil was a little softer. It was a lot of work to get the soil prepared. The meaning behind the soil that Jesus Christ was talking about in his parable, there was the hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the fertile soil. 
The, the soil represent our hearts. God is saying, the heart of men and women are like these four types of soil. And in previous messages, I covered what the meaning of the hard-packed soil was and how birds or the enemy come to steal the seed. I talked about the rocky soil that comes to steal the seed. And we talked specifically about what the seed is. And God makes it very clear. The seed for our heart is his word. The word of God that goes deep into our heart and can produce fruit. You see, this seed has everything in it that you need. That could be a wrap. This seed has what you need. Okay. Sorry, forget it. That was corny. I know that. This seed has what you need. And if you'll get it lodged into your heart and hold on to it and allow it to take root, you'll be amazed the things that it will produce. And it'll produce more than an avocado. It'll produce way more than an orange or, or an apple or whatever kind of fruit you're looking for. It'll produce things like peace and joy, patience, gentleness and kindness, self-control. I don't know about you, but I need a little self-control once in a while, especially when I go to the refrigerator and I'm on diet. I need some self-control. God, give me self-control because that ice cream looks really tasty. Self-control. These are the kinds of things that this word will produce in your life. Well, <clears throat> I want to look at that third type of soil tonight. And I want to get into the thorny soil, the thorny soil. Take a look at what Jesus says about the farmer. He takes a look at this, this third type of soil. Here's what he said. Some other seed fell amongst thorns. This is Mark chapter four, verse seven, which grew up and choked out the plants. So they did not bear any grain. That was the parable. That was the portion of the parable. Jesus explains what this portion of the parable means down in verses 18 and 19. And here's what he says. He says, still others, talking about the, the, the heart and the seed, he said, like seeds sown among thorns, they hear the word of God, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what Jesus is saying is, just like seed that's sown into thorny soil and grows up, then that plant gets choked out by those weeds, our hearts, if it's thorny, if it's weed-filled, God's word gets in there, but it never actually produces the fruit that it's intended to produce because it gets choked out by these things, these things that we experience every single day in life. Each of us experiences this stuff on a regular basis. I feel that all of us can relate to this verse because of our lifestyle here in Orange County, here in Southern California. The seed of God's word is planted and it starts to take root and you grab a hold of that and go, yeah, God, I want to be what your word says. I want to do what your word says. But then the pressures of life start to come on. The worries, the cares, the concerns, or... The desires, the desires for more, the desires to have stuff. Ooh, Orange County, we got to have our stuff. I lived for a few years in Newport Beach. Oh my goodness. That beautiful $4 million house wasn't enough. They had to tear it down and build a $10 million house. Got to have more stuff. It's where we live. It's where we breathe. It's where we function. But let's start 
with the thing that chokes it out, the worries of this life. The worries of this life. I don't know about you. Have you ever experienced worries? Mm-hmm. First major worry. I, I, I was a young man. Didn't have many worries. I'm kind of an even-tempered guy. Not a lot of highs, not a lot of lows. Just kind of even. Even Stephen. That's who I am. Except this one time. We had just given birth to Rachel. I say we because I was there too. Right, man? Come on. Matter of fact, Leah's not in here right now. She's with the baby, so I'm going I'm to throw her under the bus. When Rachel was born, when Leah was having her major contraction, she had her hands around my neck. And she was squeezing. I felt every single contraction she had. So I say we had a baby that night. And I know all you women going, uh-uh. You didn't experience anything. I know. We would go like most new parents. You know, we're going to go every single uh, two weeks and then every single month to have the checkup to see how our baby's doing. We were young parents, our first baby, so we wanted to make sure that she hit all those milestones. You know, she's eating the way she's supposed to be eating. She's pooping the way she's supposed to be pooping. You know, all the things that we do as new parents. Well, I can remember. She was about, I want to say, 10 or 11 months old. And we went to our doctor. I wasn't a big fan of this doctor, but this was our doctor. This was part of our insurance, so this was our doctor. And she comes in, and we're doing the whole checkup and everything. And she takes Rachel, and this was one of the tests. She takes Rachel, and she takes her from me. And she takes her, and she starts to put her down on the, on the, on the examination table. And she puts her feet down. And Rachel takes her feet and just kind of pulls them up. She didn't want to stand up. She was held by every person in our family. She does not want to stand up. But the doctor's eyes got real big and she got real serious. That's not good to do with a new mom and a new dad. Doctors should not make those kind of faces to new moms and new dads. And then she does it again. And then the doctor says these words, two terrible words. A doc, You never want to hear a doctor say, oh no. Right? Do you want to hear a doctor say, oh no? No, you do not. Now, at that point, my wife and I are starting to panic. What do you mean, oh no? And she goes, well, we, we probably need to run some tests because this would be one of the signs of cerebral palsy. Yeah, moms in here are going, what kind of doctor would say that? Can you imagine my wife and I in that moment, in that, in that room, what came over us? Our new little baby, our 10 or 11-month-old child, this doctor is saying, there's the possibility of cerebral palsy. What does that mean? That sounds terrible. And she goes, I want to set up some more tests. <coughs> Worry, fear began to just flood over my wife and I. We took our baby. We went out of the car. We just began to weep. We don't know what this means. What's wrong with our little girl? And I can remember so vividly my first time in my life where I was so utterly overwhelmed with fear for my child. Worry is a result of fear, which is based in doubt. And we begin to talk to each other. 
And we begin to build each other up, saying, hold on, hold on here. We don't know what's going on. This doctor just insinuated that there might be something wrong. We, we can't get, and we begin to talk and build each other up. We can't get overwhelmed with this. We don't know what this is all about. And we begin to build each other up in our own faith. And we begin to say, hold on, hold on here. We're not going to let fear and worry begin to take us over. And I remember very clearly in the moment in that car, we begin to speak scripture to each other. We begin to talk to each other because I needed her to build me up and she needed me to build her up. See, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. We needed our faith built up. We didn't want the report from the doctor to define our situation. We wanted a report from God. And so instead of fear, being fearful, we began to exercise our muscles of faith. And here's what we did. We began to speak this passage of scripture. Take a look. We said, Psalm chapter 103, verses two through three, say this. Say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and who heals all your disease. And we just begin to say that out loud. Saying, God, this is what your word says. We begin to say what Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, by his stripes we are healed. We begin to say what Mark 16, 18 says, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We determined in that moment that we were not going to let a doctor's definition define what was going on. And this doctor's definition was just out there in, in the blue. It wasn't even a, 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 what do you call it? It wasn't a diagnosis. We chose to do this that day. I rented a hotel in San Diego. We went down to San Diego. We checked into our hotel. And we began to take little Rachel and we began to pray with her. And we'd say, okay, time to stand up. Time to stand up. And she'd kind of work her way up, you know, and put some weight on her legs. And then she'd sit back down. And she'd start to cry. Why? Because she wanted to be picked up. She was used to being picked up all the time. She was carried by everyone in our family. I was a youth pastor. We had 250 kids in our youth group. We had no problem finding somebody to watch our kids. There were days that would go by I wouldn't even see my daughter. No, no, I'm kidding. But she was always held. Why should she have to stand up? And we said, in those three days, we said, well, you're going to stand. And we began to pray over her, love on her, and help her to stand up. By the end of those three days, she was standing up on her own little strength, holding my hand, we decided after those three days, we're going to go talk to another doctor. So we went to Loma Linda University, and we, we, had, we scheduled an appointment to go visit with a doctor. The doctor examined Rachel, and his words were, your daughter is absolutely perfect. There is nothing wrong with this little girl. She is wonderful. And then we said, well, there's other doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's when he said, he goes, well, uh, does your daughter ever have a chance to stand up? And we said, No. He said, yeah, everybody probably holds your daughter, huh? Yeah, well, she doesn't want to stand up. So just give her those opportunities. But you see, just those simple words that that unfortunate doctor spoke filled me with fear and doubt. Words filled me with fear and doubt. That's not what God wants for us. And every single day, you and I are faced with words that come at us that fill us with fear and doubt, don't they? Ooh, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be downsizing here pretty soon, Sean. Not your job right now. But we know when they, when they say those words, right? Oh, they're downsizing. Oh, 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 Jessica, you know, uh, I heard that there's, 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 there's things that are happening around here. You better watch out when you go to your car. 
Turn on the news? My goodness, you won't sleep all night long. My goodness, we have access to words that begin to fill us with doubt and fear and concern and the worries of this life that begin to choke out what God has said. You see, if we let it, then this word will never bear fruit in your life. Remember, worry is a reaction to fear. That's what it is. If you're, if you're consumed with worry, the, 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 the core of that is fear. There's something that you're afraid of. And fear is based in doubt. The opposite of that is faith. Faith is what God is trying to stir up in us, is trying to get our faith muscles built. Faith confronts worry and said, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to trust that he says he loves me he has the best for me, and so I'm going to lean on him. That's what faith says. Here's the definition of faith. Take a look. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This gives us the definition of faith. It says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. See, that's the definition of faith. If you're wondering, going, what is faith? Well, that's the definition of it. From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the NIV says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The Amplified means they expand upon that a little bit to help us understand a little more. The Amplified says, now faith is the assurance of the things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. See, that's what faith is, and it's the opposite of doubt. Doubt leads to worry and concern and an upset stomach and anxiety. Faith leads to hope and assurance. How do you want to live? How do you want to live? I don't want to live in fear and doubt and worry. I want to live in faith. Because there's joy in that. Joy in that. See, God is trying to get us to have a complete faith. When we say yes to Jesus, we're exercising faith, saying, I'm going to trust you, God, with my eternal life. And if you can trust him with your eternal life, can't you trust him with your life right here, right now? Then do it. He's trying to get us to, to trust in him. But instead, what we do, and I'll tell you, I do it too, is we doubt. Or we put our faith in something else which is the rest of that verse. We put our faith in something else. It, it, the, the Bible says it this way. It says, Jesus says, the deceitfulness of wealth and riches and the desire for other things. Now listen, it didn't say the wickedness of riches. All right, and some of you are probably going, amen. Because it didn't say the wickedness of riches is what chokes out God's word. No, it says the deceitfulness of riches is what chokes out God's word. That's different. That's, de that's different. See, riches lie. They do. They lie. Because riches appear to answer all of the problems, right? It's not that the riches are wicked. It's just that it makes it seem like everything will be fine, right? If, if we have the rich, life will be easy. The rich life is the easy life, right? If only I could win the lottery. 
And the big sign on the 57 as you're driving right there by Anaheim Stadium that puts those giant numbers up there, right? Every single day or week you drive by it. Wow, $200 million. What could I do with $200 million? Last October, remember, it was $868 million. It was hard for my brain to even wrap around what it would be like to have a billion dollars. Man, I admit I was dreaming what I could do with all of that. A lot. My goodness. And we think, oh, this will solve all my problems. But you know, if you dig a little bit, maybe you've heard some reports. I was reading Business Insider recently, and Business Insider was talking about all these people who have won the lottery. And they had article after article after article after article. Not just one or two or three, but there were like 50 different winners that within just a couple of years were dead broke. Wow. Here's, here, let me read it. Here's a couple of them. Uh, Laura and Roger Griffith. Before they won their $2.7 million lottery jackpot in 2005, Laura and Roger of England hardly ever argued. They had been married for, for uh, uh, 10 years. Then they won the lottery. They bought a million-dollar barn converted it, a million dollar converted barn that was converted to a house and they bought a Porsche, not to mention luxurious trips to Dubai, Monaco, and New York. Their fortune ended just five years later, five years later, when a freak fire gutted their entire house, which was underinsured, forcing them to shell out for all sorts of repairs and seven months of temporary accommodations. And they were now used to living a certain kind of lifestyle. So these were not cheap accommodations. Not too long after the house was repaired, Roger drove away in the Porsche after Laura confronted him over email suggesting he was having an affair, ending their 14-year marriage. Gee, money didn't solve those problems, did it? William Post. William Bud Post won $16 million in Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, but he was $1 million in debt one year later. Can you believe it? He says, I wish it had never happened. It was a total nightmare. I think that's how he talked. Then Bud. A former, and, and I use that accent and that's kind of rude, but a former girlfriend... Listen, a former girlfriend, a former girlfriend successfully sued him for a third of his winnings. And his brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him, hoping that he would inherit a share of the winnings because he was the brother. After sinking money into a family business, Post sank deep into debt and spent time in jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. He said, in jail, I was much happier when I was broke. The Washington Post uh, interviewed him. Bud lived quietly for the next few years on $450 a month and food stamps until his death in 2006. Man, that money didn't solve his problems. Evelyn Adams. Against all odds, Evelyn Adams in the mid-1980s won the lottery not just once, but twice. Lightning struck twice there. The New Jersey native won a total of $6 million. But 
Askmen.com reports that she gambled her, her entire winnings away in Atlantic City. Adams told the New York Times in 1993 that publicly she received, oh, I'm sorry, that the publicity she received led to a bombardment of requests for financial assistance. She said, everywhere I would go, people would recognize me and ask me for handouts. You see, that's just three stories of rags to riches back to rags. Studies show and this was according to Business Insider, that 65% of people who receive large winnings or large inheritance are back to where they started or worse within 10 years. Financial planners all agree that sudden wealth can actually compound problems, not solve them. Now listen, money does solve some problems. Of course it does. But it doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't solve the deep problems. It doesn't solve the deep needs that we have. My wife was just telling me today that uh, Jerry Seinfeld's wife struggles with insomnia. Jerry Seinfeld has one of the largest uh, auto collections in, in the United States right now. One, one of the wealthiest entertainers there is. He continues to make money hand over fist and his wife can't sleep at night. You would think that money could buy her a good night's sleep, wouldn't you think? Let's take a look at the Bible and get some biblical advice, shall we? Just for the next few minutes, and then we'll close up our time. When we look into the Bible, the most prosperous and wealthy man ever recorded was a guy by the name of Solomon. He was the, he was the son of King David. He was so wealthy. Take a look at this. It's recorded in 2 Chronicles that he had thousands of horses imported and he exported to exotic locations. Solomon's wealth was not limited to a one-time lump sum of an inheritance, but he actually had cash flow, right? And we all know, for those of us who are investors, cash flow is important. The Bible records that he had mines, he had quarries, he had fields and farmland that produced so much that he had to employ 153,000 men just to work all those investments. It says that other kings and nations brought annual tribute to him just so that they could sit with him and learn from his side, his wisdom. It would be like your boss sending you to a conference where, where Warren Buffett or Bill Gates uh, might be speaking. They would pay just so that you could go and learn from those men. It's safe to say that Solomon knows a little bit about finances and managing finances, wouldn't you agree? So what does he have to say about finances? Proverbs chapter 11 what I like to call Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, I like to call 31 ways to, su to succeed. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28 says, take a look. He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage or like a tree, like a plant bearing fruit. Now it doesn't say, does it say those who are rich will fall? No, it says, he who trusts in his riches. It's not a sin to be wealthy. Matter of fact, it's God that brings the increase. But the question is, where's your trust? Where's your hope? Where's your provision come from? Back in another of Solomon's writings, he says this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Take a look. Whoever loves money never has money enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Rockefeller, industrial giant, considered one of the wealthiest men in all of history. Rockefeller was interviewed and asked by a newspaper, hey, how much more do you need? You own trains and steel and all this stuff. How much more do you need? And you know what his response was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. About a thousand years after, uh, after Solomon, the apostle Paul writes these words. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, both of these men tell us it's not the money that's wicked and evil. It's the love and the trust we put in our stuff. And, and you don't have to be super wealthy to put your trust in stuff. Each of us could be putting our trust and hope in stuff rather than in the one who makes it possible for the stuff to even exist. Money is neither evil nor good. It's neutral. Actually, I like to think that money is more like a magnifying glass. It magnifies. If you're generous with a little, that money is just going to magnify your generosity and you're going to be generous with a lot. If you have an addictive personality, you know what money's going to do? It's just going to magnify that. And it's just going to make you have opportunities for greater temptation. Evelyn, she had a propensity for gambling. What happens when she gets all that money? She gambles it all away. You see, money just magnified. If you lack discipline with a small amount of money, you're going to lack discipline with a large amount of money. See, what makes it deceitful is it appears to answer the problems. The car, the house, better health care, better education. So it appears that the answer to life's problems are found in money but it actually simply masks the deeper issues and chokes out what God wants to do in each of us. If we look at the rest of verse 10 in 1 Timothy, we see Paul warning Pastor Timothy and his congregation. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul warns Timothy, hey, watch out, watch out. Be careful how you handle money. Don't let money handle you. You be the handler of money. See that? Don't let the money choke it out. Don't let the worries of this life choke it out. See the, sor the, thorn the thorny thoriel? The thorny soil, <laughs> the weeds represent those things in our life that is choking out the faith God wants you to have. The faith that produces peace and joy. The faith that produces confidence in the face of adversity. The faith that says, this storm will pass and I'm gonna trust God to be my provision. It's all about real faith. And if we lack true faith and we put our faith in other things, then we're not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us. See, Jesus Christ came and he says this, I have come that they would have life and have life abundantly. And the abundant life Jesus wants you to know, freedom from guilt, 
freedom from shame, joy in the midst of adversity, hope, hope when all things seem dark. That's the abundant life Jesus Christ is looking for you to have in your life. And you know what? It's free. It's free. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. It doesn't matter how rich you are. Jesus says, I want you to have it for free. I offer this as a free gift of life. That's what Jesus promises. And when we put our hope and our faith in God and his word, then it will produce the fruit in our lives that we so desperately desire. Thank you for listening. For more information, check out our website at wearerefinery.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram at wearerefinery. God bless.